can a Christian lose their salvation? Acts chapter number 20, verse number 21. Luke here makes a profound statement concerning salvation. Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse number 21. He is talking to the Ephesian elders here, and he's exhorting them. In verse number 21, he states, Testifying to the Jews, also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That right there is the formula for salvation. Faith and repentance. Faith in God and repentance of your sin through Jesus Christ. That's a clear formula for salvation. Repentance towards God and faith towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting to note here that it did not say faith only because there has to be repentance involved. The devil believes that there is a God, but yet he is not converted. So there has to be this confession and repentance of your sin in order for true conversion to take place. So just because you believe doesn't make you a believer or a Christian. There has to be repentance, faith and repentance, and that is lacking in the church. The very first message of Jesus was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The very first message of the apostles was repent and be baptized. The very first message of early Christianity was repent, and that is still the message of today. It's not popular but it is the message of repentance of sin and faith in God through grace alone. So the, the school of thought for some Christians is, of course, Calvinism. And one of the tenets of Calvinism is the perseverance of saints, which states that once a believer is saved, they are once saved, always saved. How many has ever heard that term before? Once you're saved, you're always saved. Raise up your hand. Once saved, always saved. And that is what certain people believe. But let me ask you a question. What does the Scripture teach? That is the question that we've got to ask. What does the Scripture teach? Scripture is our foundation. Scripture is our rock. What does our Scripture is our rule of faith and practice? What does the Scripture teach? Now, we can disagree with denominations. We can disagree with churches. We can disagree with people, and we can disagree with intellectual people who have studied this topic, and there are intellectuals on both sides here. And so we can disagree without dishonoring them. So we respectfully disagree because when we look at Scripture, we believe that it is very plain that a person who is once converted, a person who has once repented of their sin, a person who has faith towards God, if they do not continue in the faith, it is possible they could lose out. Now, I made it very clear last week that you can't lose your salvation just because you walk out the church and you think a bad thought or you say something you shouldn't have said or did something you shouldn't have did. You can't lose your salvation that easily. And if we're not careful, we can go to the extreme. Like when I was growing up in classical Pentecostalism, it was to the extreme. No disrespect to my leaders because I love them very, very much and never to dishonor them. And even though it may have not been taught specifically, it was implied that your salvation could be lost very easily. And I remember, just like some of you have told the story, where 
I mean, I got saved every Sunday. I mean, and guess what? I know I've been baptized in water at least four or five times because we, I just wanted to make sure that Jesus is my Lord and I'm going to heaven. Can I hear an amen? And so it was implied that, you know, you could lose your salvation if you think something you shouldn't thought, if you're thinking something that you shouldn't be thinking and saying something you shouldn't be saying, and you could just easily lose it. And that's not what the Scripture teaches. You can't just easily lose your salvation. Backsliding is a willful, habitual act. It's, it's this willful, habitual, continual sinning going backwards. It's not a one-time thing that you do. And so we'll see that in Scripture. So, uh, But the question is this. If you are saved and born again, and you have received eternal life, then, uh, then isn't eternal life eternal? If it's eternal, then how can you lose something eternal? That's, that's the question that is proposed to us tonight. If eternal life is eternal, then how can you lose something eternal? And I would agree wholeheartedly that eternal life is eternal, very much so. But eternal life, which is the very life of God, cannot be possessed by a man apart from living in union with Christ. Okay? It's not as though you have this, 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 this little spark inside of you called eternal life and you can never lose it. It's not what the Scripture teaches. It is a partnership with God. The very life of God cannot be possessed by a man unless he or she is living in complete union with Christ. Eternal life will certainly endure, but it is a participation in the life of God. It is a part that you have to play. The Bible says in John chapter 5 and verse number 24, John chapter 5 and verse number 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word believes in me, who has sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. This is a famous scripture that those who disagree with us would quote, but I want to make sure that you understand the scripture here. In most translations, this is New King James, but most translations will read it like this. Most, 98% of all uh, interpretation or translation of this scripture and I'm going to read from Young's literal translation of this scripture, and this is what Young's literal translation of this particular scripture states. Verily, verily, I say to you, he who is hearing my word and he who is believing on me that sent me hath everlasting life and does not come to judgment but has passed out of death into life. So you look at the scripture here, it's not, a, it's not a privileged position. In other words, it is given us the indication here, Young's literal translation is saying to those who read that the person who is habitually hearing, the person who is habitually believing has passed from death unto life. It's not because you believe one time and that's it. No, no, no. He that is habitually, continually believing and the person who is hearing on a continual basis and believing on a continual basis has passed from death unto life. So that changes the whole definition and context of this passage. 
It is not a one-time thing. It is not a privileged position. I believe one time I had a crisis experience, and because I had this crisis experience, I put my faith in Christ, and therefore I am secure for all eternity. It doesn't matter how I live. I am secure. That's not what the Scripture is implying here. He that habitually hears and he that habitually believes has passed from death into life. Is there anybody tonight that is habitually hearing and habitually believing in the Word of God tonight? You've got to habitually believe and you've got to habitually confess and habitually give heed to the Word of God. How is back, what is backsliding? Habitually sinning. Backsliding is willful, habitual sinning. How do I abide in Christ? Habitual hearing and believing. Can somebody say amen? So if you're going to abide in Christ, there has to be this habitual believing and hearing, this continuing union with Christ. If you're going to backslide, it's a habitual sinning, a habitual committing of sin going backwards. How do I go forwards? My habitual believing and my habitual hearing causes me to go forward and my habitual sinning causes me to go back. Can I hear an amen? Is there anybody with me tonight? So habitual sinning is backsliding. Habitual believing and hearing is forward progression of faith in Christ. In John chapter 1 verse number 12, John chapter 1 verse 12 St. John here gives the reader a clue about salvation. John chapter 1 and verse number 12. But as many as received him, salvation, to them he gave the right to become the children of God and to those who believe in his name. It's interesting to me that the word believe, believe here is the aorist tense of the Greek word believing. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God and to those who are believing in his name. Somebody shout hallelujah. So when you believe in his salvation is just not I was saved. Salvation is past, present, and future. I was saved, I am being saved, and I shall be saved. Can I hear an amen? I am justified, I am being sanctified, I shall be glorified. Somebody say amen. Say with me. I was justified. I'm being sanctified and I shall be glorified. I was delivered from the penalty of sin. When you come to Christ, you are delivered from judgment. You are delivered from the penalty of sin. But you may not be delivered from the natural consequences of sin. You may still got to face the consequences of what you've done in your life but you are delivered from the penalty of sin, the judgment, the hell, the condemnation. You're delivered from that. You see, I grew up in Christianity where they taught you when you stand before God, God's going to have this white board or he's, your, your life is going to be like a movie and all the bad things you've ever done is going to be showed right before your eyes and all of the court of heaven. Well, that is just a manipulation tool to get people to the altar, because that is not found in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that if you continue to believe and continue to hear, you are passed from judgment 
unto life. That should make somebody shout right there. You are passed from judgment unto life. The moment you become a believer, you confess your sin and believe upon Christ, you are delivered from the penalty of sin. Your habitual believing, your habitual hearing sanctifies you, sets you apart, and then at the resurrection you'll be forever set apart, never have to deal with sin, forever glorified. Can I hear an amen? So John here, John chapter 1 verse 12, he states that salvation is not just he gives us the right to become the children of God, but he also it's given to those who continue to believe in his name. To those who are believing in his name. You see, look at Colossians. And you say, well, Pastor, you know, why, why didn't the translators uh, put believing? Well, you know, it is the word of God, but not every period and comma is correct. Or was correct. It's correct now. You understand what I'm saying? Just because we got to, before we look at it theologically, we got to look at it in, in the grammar context here because that can make a whole lot of sense. You know the scripture, when the enemy comes in like a flood, he'll raise up a standard against him. That is, it, it's right, but it's incorrect because of the, of the punctuation of it. When the enemy comes in, comma, like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. Can somebody shout amen? It's not when the enemy comes like a flood. No, no, no. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit will rush in and raise up a standard against him. Can somebody shout hallelujah? So the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 21, quickly, Colossians chapter 1, verse number 21, listen to the words of Paul here as he writes to believers. He's writing to believers. He's not writing to sinners, he's writing an epistle, a letter to believers. He says in verse number 21, and you, talking about Christians, who once was alienated and enemies in your mind. How many knows that life's greatest battles happen in the mind? The problem with people is the problem is between your ears. It's your mind. Can I hear an amen? Everybody say, it's between my ears. Everybody say, the problem is between my ears. He says, you were alienated and enemies in your mind by your wicked works. Because your works is a result of what you think on. Am I right? Somebody say amen. But he says, but now you are reconciled. Verse number 22. He says, in the body of his flesh, through his death, to present you holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight. Look at verse 23. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. So he's talking about believers here. He's talking about saved folks. But then he says, verse 23, if you indeed continue in the faith. What is he talking about? Look at the previous verse, 22. He says, you can present yourself to God blameless, above reproach, if you continue in the faith. Not because you confessed him one time. Not because you come down the altar and cried a little bit and said a sinner's prayer and walked out the door. No, no, no salvation, when you come to the altar, that is the beginning of salvation. That is not the end of salvation. That is the beginning point. All right? And what, what's happened in Christianity is we have produced a gospel that is not the gospel found in the, the Bible. We have produced a gospel where we tell people, raise your hand, and I've done it, 
confess this prayer, walk out the door, and yet there's no follow-up, there's no discipleship, there's no accountability for your actions, there's no accountability for your life. We just allow people to live whatever they want to live with no accountability according to Scripture. He says, if you continue in the faith, he says, if you continue in it, if you habitually hear and habitually give heed to the Word of God and habitually believe the Word of God, he says, then you're going to be grounded and you're going to be steadfast. You know why people are not grounded? You know why people are not steadfast in the gospel? Because they're not continuing to give heed to the Word of God. Somebody just help me preach tonight. And you know what happens? If you are not in, if you're not continuing in the Word, and you're not continuing to believe in here, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. He's talking about Christians here. You're going to be moved away. If you don't make a decision that you're going to continue in the gospel, you will be moved away. Amen. Are you all hot in here? You think? Yeah. How many is hot? Raise your hand. Yeah. I knew it was no change of life. I knew the heat was on up in here. So, Brother Sean, can you turn it down just a little bit? Or turn it off. Let's just turn it off. How's that? Amen. You know, maybe it would be more becoming if I was preaching on hell, but I'm trying to get us out of hell tonight. All right? Somebody say amen. How many knows I'm trying to get y'all out? Come on. Can I hear an amen? So, so Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. Acts chapter 14, verse number 21. Listen to the words here of Luke. Acts chapter 14, verse number 21. Acts chapter 14, verse number 21. Acts 14, verse number 21. And when they had preached the gospel to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Verse number 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples Look at this. What, was, what were they doing? Exhorting them to continue in the faith, saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You see that. So they had appointed elders in every church, and they prayed with, fair, uh, with fasting, and they commanded them to the Lord in which they believed. It's interesting that they continued. They, they told them to continue in the faith, and guess what happened? They sent pastors. The word elders is the word overseer. Pastor, bishop, presbyter, elder are all synonymous terms for the word overseer. Okay, so the disciples are strengthening these people and telling these people, you've got to continue in the faith. And guess what they did to make sure they continued in the faith? They set elders and pastors over the churches. Come on, somebody. A pastor ain't paid just to make you feel good. He, he Come on, somebody. He, he is just ain't here just to take up some space. He is appointed by God. He or she is appointed by God to strengthen you in the faith that's been handed to us from the disciples. All right, can I, can I hear an amen? To strengthen us in the faith. To continue in the gospel. So when they had appointed elders in every church, they prayed with fasting and commanded, commended them to the Lord everywhere. Do you see the verse number 22? These disciples strengthened the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith. Verse number 22, look at it. Verse 22, exhorted them to continue in the faith. That's what you got to do. you got to stay in it. 
you've got to continue to believe. You've got to continue to hear and believe. When you continue to hear and believe, you move forward. But your habitual sin causes you to backslide. Now, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse number 15. Y'all just hold on here. Don't get bored. I'm just laying the foundation, all right? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15. It states this, for they, speaking of Christians here, they have forsaken the right way and they have gone astray. Now, you cannot over, miss overlooking these scriptures. It's very clear that Peter here, you look at it, 2 Peter chapter number 1, verse number 1, he's speaking to Christians. He plainly said here that these people have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray, fallen the way of Balaam. who love the wages of unrighteousness. Look at the next verse. But he was rebuked for his iniquity, and a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So he's, now this particular scripture is also found in the book of Jude, am I right? He says these people who apostatized their faith have went away and followed the way of Cain and also the way of Balaam and the way of Korah. It's also found in the book of Jude. Jude and 2 Peter are sister books here. Very similar in their writing, very similar in their information. He says, these people have gone astray. Now, this is what I think we should bring up here. If you are a Christian and you have believed and heard and confessed and the Holy Spirit's done a work in your life and you're regenerated and you are spiritually born again, just like John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is probably the only detailed scripture about the term born again. It is implied in the Old Testament. It's implied. It doesn't use the same language. But it's interesting that people who disagree with us will always use this scripture, like, well, if you had a son and he, did, he was disobedient, then you would never reject him as being your son. That, that's the whole thing. I've heard that, blah, 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 blah. If you have a son and daughter and they did something wrong and they left and were disobedient, you as a parent would never disown them because they are still their, your son no matter what they do, no matter what they do to you. Yes, that's right. And so they equate that to spiritual birth. So if we're spiritually born again and we're a child of God, it doesn't matter once you've accepted him, it doesn't matter how rebellious you've been, you're always a son of God or a child of God or a daughter of God. And that is complete foolishness. And I'm going to tell you why it's foolish. Okay? It's foolish. John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and he says, he says, verse number 1, John chapter 3 and verse number 1, there was a man, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Verse number 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things unless they're from God, and God is with them. Verse number 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The correct translation of it reads this way. Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom. 
unless he's born from a, not born again, but born from above. Okay, now, why am I going to disagree with this whole theory that if you are a child of God, just like you, you have children, and all of us would agree, no matter what your child does, you would never disown them. How many would agree with that? Come on, raise your hand. And if you don't agree with me, just fake it and say, yeah, I probably don't. So I think it's, I think it's foolish for us to equate that to spiritual things. Now why? Because number one, physical birth, number one, physical birth is the inception of life. But spiritual birth is the transition of one mode of life to another. In spiritual birth, you have a life. It's spiritual death, what it is. That mode of life is transitioned to spiritual life. But in a physical birth, there's no transition of one mode of life to another. It's the inception of life. Number two, physical birth, in a physical birth, one has no prior knowledge and gives no consent. You don't have a right, you don't, you, you, you know, you, you're, not, you're not like you can pick your parents. And it's not like they come to you and say, do you care if we give birth to you? If you can just sign this piece of paper and walk down the aisle, we're going to give birth to you tomorrow. That, that's ridiculous. You have, in a physical birth, there is no prior knowledge, and you can't give consent to it. You're here whether you like it or not. But in a spiritual birth, you have to have prior knowledge of your sinful life so you can confess it, and you must give consent. Y'all looking at me like a greasy pig at a county fair. Can y'all just... So you see the difference. Number three, you know why it doesn't work? Number three, in the physical, one receives life independent of his parents. So, Kathy, how many children do you have? Three. Those children are a part of Kathy and Phil, but they're independent from Kathy and Phil. They have their own life now. As a matter of fact, they can live without Kathy and Phil. As a matter of fact, Kathy and Phil will pass away if the rapture doesn't, we're all going to pass away, but they can continue to live on without them. It's independent of them, even though they came from them. In a spiritual sense, you have no life outside of Christ. You can't live outside and independently from Christ. Without Christ and without you abiding in Christ, there is spiritual death. And somebody say amen. The next one is, I think that's all of them. These three things clearly indicate to us that I believe it's foolish for us to equate physical birth to spiritual birth. Because I don't think the Scripture teaches that at all. What the Scripture is teaching is that both physical and spiritual birth is very real, but they're very different. It's very different. So what are you saying, Pastor Josh? I'm saying this. It's very important that you listen to me. New birth is a spiritual relationship between God and man, which begins with a quickening by the Spirit when a man yields himself to the will of God through the repentance and faith in Christ Jesus, which is sustained by the Holy Spirit 
as the individual continues to repent and believe. That's what I'm propagating to you. Hannah, you want me to read it again? New birth is a spiritual relationship between God and man, which begins with a quickening of the spirit when a man yields himself to the will of God through faith and repentance in Christ Jesus, which is sustained by the Holy Spirit as the individual continues to believe, confess, and repent. John chapter 1, verse 3. John chapter 1, verse 3. Let's look at this scripture. John chapter 1, verse number 3. 1 John, excuse me. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 9. Now, this scripture at first sounds very contradictory, but I want you to just pay very close attention. 1 John chapter 3, verse number 9. John says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. He cannot sin because he's been born of God. Now, the correct translation means, it means whoever has been born of God does not continue to commit sin, does not continue to practice sin. Now, why is that important to note? Because if that scripture means exactly what it says, then it, there's contradictory in scripture. Because 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says this. First, now, this says, if you're born of God, you don't commit sin. And the other scripture in the same book says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So there's no contradiction in scripture. John is clearly saying here that Christians will sin. Because if you say you have not sinned, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. So the verb tense here is the person who continues to practice sin is of the devil. If you habitually sin, if you continue and willfully, habitually continue to sin without repentance, you will backslide and thus you're of the devil. Because no Christian, no Christian can willfully sin and enjoy it and not repent of it. Now, I didn't say you, would, you wouldn't sin. We all mess up. We all sin. But you will not enjoy it. You don't want to do it. And you should quickly run to repent. But the person who stays in their sin and has no conviction of their sin and no pull of the Holy Spirit to make things right, you are backsliding on a slippery slope going down destruction. And it's very dangerous. Very dangerous. So if you continue to commit sin, then the Scripture says you're of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. He says this. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 6. Whoever, now this is in the same book. Whoever abides in me, abides, continue to abide. Whoever is continuing to abide does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Known him. So if you continue to abide in him, you're not going to sin. If you continue to abide in him, you're going to quickly turn away from it. Now quickly, let's look at this. Now, what are you saying, Pastor Josh? I'm saying that a Christian who has confessed Christ as his Savior and Lord, has put his faith in Christ alone, does not exempt him from sin. You may sin, and you may fail at times, but the key is you continue to believe 
and you continue to hear. But the person who habitually sins is the person who is on a slippery slope down destruction. And I hear an amen. Do you know what the Bible says in Hebrews 10.26? Look at it. Hebrews 10.26. Hebrews 10.26. Look at what the writer says here. For if we sin after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for our sin. So he's speaking to Christians here. If you're habitually, willfully doing it, and you know you're doing it, and there is no sense to change, and no sense to confess, and no sense to make it right, then that's when it becomes dangerous. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Now, let's look at people in the Bible who have walked away from their faith. Okay, let's just take a few moments. Look at people who have walked away from their faith. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 22. This is, he, he, this is so awesome here. He says, um, uh, look at verse number 19. Hebrews 10 verse 19. Uh, look at this phrase here. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our conscience sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession or possession of our hope without wavering for he has promised he is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together you see that he's speaking to Christians well as Christians you shouldn't be missing church you should make an opportunity to be in the house of God he says don't don't make excuses for it you should quickly not forsake the assembly of yourself together. He says, because as manner, some people are. Some people are fallen away. Some people are turning the opposite direction. He says, but don't you do it. Don't forsake coming together. Some people are staying out. Some people don't care. And some people, their heart is far from God. He says, but you don't do it. He says, don't do it because the day is coming. Christ is coming. You should assemble as much as possible. Somebody better say amen. How many knows Jesus is coming back? So, do you see what he says here? Verse 22, Hebrews 10, 22. He says to these believers, let us draw near. Why do you got to draw near? Because there's a possibility you're going to draw away from it. Why do you need to draw near? Because there's a possibility that you may draw away from God. Jude, verse number 12. Jude gives this discourse of those who left the faith. Jude makes it very clear. I, I read this scripture before, and I never saw this until... Actually, I saw it today. As I was reading over the scripture again, I'm like, I had never seen this. So when I went to study it, I, of course, I don't want to interpret it just by my own, um, my own knowledge, because my knowledge is, you know, I'm, I'm ever learning here. But I wanted to confirm. He says, now, Jude, now, Jude makes a case here. He's talking about, he, he's talking about contending for the faith. 
or fighting for the faith. Okay? And then he makes this whole discourse of people, verse number 5, Jude, verse number 5. He says, I want to remind you. He says, I want to remind you, though, that the Lord saved some people out of the land of Egypt. He saved them out of Egypt. Let me say that again. He saved them out of Egypt. But afterwards, they were destroyed because they didn't believe. He said, I want to remind you that just because you start the race well doesn't mean you're going to finish well. Just because you believe yesterday doesn't mean you're believing today. He says, because some of you, your hearts are drawing away from you. And he says, I want to remind you that those who the Lord saved, most of them he destroyed. He says, I want to remind you, because what happens is in church, we become so prideful and arrogant of our salvation that we have no fear of ever falling. He says, but I want to remind you that these people lost out. Verse number 6, he says, but I want to tell you about another group of people. These these angels. These angels, they they, uh, didn't keep their proper domain, but they left their own abode. And he reserved them in everlasting chain. So what is the context here? These angels, although were in a safe, secure place, after a while, they were put in chains. You have people in Egypt brought out and saved, but then they were destroyed. You have people in heaven who were with me, but yet in the end they ended up in everlasting chains. He says, I want to remind you. And then, and I don't want to read the whole thing because I don't have time, but you can read the rest of it. And then he says, I want to tell you who these people are. Verse number 12. Verse number 12. He says, these people are like spots in your love feast. And you know what a love feast is? The word love there is the word agape feast. And early Christians, get this, early Christians would come to church on the first day of the week. And there, after the liturgy, they would always have a meal together. Now, the Lord's Supper actually was was a was a meal together. Eventually, through church history, we separated it. And this love feast became a potluck dinner. So they would come to church, then they would stay afterwards like we did Sunday, and they would eat together because they understood that families eat together. Well, that's, you know, it's very offensive for you to make a, a meal and sit down at a table and your children don't show up to eat. Same way in the body of Christ. We should eat together and fellowship together because that is so much, that is just as spiritual than coming to church singing and worshiping God. Can I hear an amen? Because what people do, people isolate themselves and isolation feeds selfishness. When you isolate yourself from the church and isolate yourself from people, you are feeding yourself instead of being a part of a living community where you have the ability to minister to somebody else. Can somebody say amen? So he said these people are like spots in the feast of your charity. In other words, these people, it's like a banquet table with food, but some of the food is spoiled. Spots. It's a beautiful banquet table, but if you look closer to the banquet table with all this food, some of the food is spoiled a little bit there. 
He says, these people that I've just listed to you, they look real good. But you look real close, they're spoiled. These people only serve themselves. He said, these people are clouds without water. They're carried. They look good. Clouds look amazing. But what is the use of a cloud if it doesn't give rain? What's the use of being a Christian if you don't learn to serve somebody else beside yourself? Well, I'm preaching up in here. I just wish somebody just helped me preach up in here. You look real good, but you don't offer anything to nobody. You're just a cloud floating around, but you offer no rain. As a matter of fact, he said, you're so flaky that every time the wind blows, you blow with it. He says, not only that, he says, you're like a tree. You look real good, but you have no fruit. He says, you're twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Now, he ain't, he ain't playing church up in here. This ain't no Mickey Mouse show right here. He's telling these people, he's telling these people, he said, these people, he said, these people, all they do is serve themselves. You're a tree, you look beautiful, but you offer nothing. You're a cloud, but you don't offer no rain. How many people come to church and all they do is serve themselves? No fruit, no rain. They don't rain. No, no it's all me. He says, these people are twice dead. Twice dead. Why? Once they were saved. They were dead one time. God saved them. But now they've turned away and they're dead again. They're twice dead. First time the Lord redeemed them. He saved them. Brought them out. They were dead one time. They're saved, but now they walked away and they're dead again. They're twice dead. How many people come under cathedrals, wear crucifixes, and they're twice dead? He said, now, why are they this way? Because verse number 11 states the reason they're this way is because they went the way of Cain. They have ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for profit, and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. These people did these things. They followed the footsteps of these people. And because they followed the footsteps of these people, they have turned their back on the grace of God. Why? Verse number 4 says they've turned away from the grace of God. Verse number 4 states in the book they've turned away from the grace of God. And they have walked the way of Cain. What is, what is the way of Cain? Cain presented an offering to God. His brother presented an offering to God. Cain got jealous because God accepted his brother's offering. The way of Cain is doing it your way. They did their own thing. My grandma used to tell me, do it your own way, Elvis. People just do it their own way. Do it your way. That's the way of Cain. The way of Balaam. Manipu man manipulation through pro profit. Running after greed and materialistic things. 
and Korah. What's Korah? You know, the company of Korah was a group of people led by a man by the name of Korah who rebelled against authority. He says, these people, these people did whatever they wanted to do. They were materialistic. They were, rebel they were rebellious against authority. You can't talk to them. They're not teachable. They did their own thing. Because they did their own thing, and I've reminded you of what happened to these other groups of people. These people are like a spot in a banquet table. These people are like a cloud with no rain. These people are like an autumn tree that has no fruit. These people are twice dead because they've turned the grace of God into lewdness. He says, woe to them. Woe to you if you follow the ways of them. He says, they're without fruit. He says, he, and you know what's interesting to me? Jude, it's like Jude can't stop. Hey, Jude is on a rampage here, isn't it? I mean, he, he opens his mouth. He starts just slam blasting these people. You know, you can just imagine. He has his finger here. I'm going to tell you right now, you're just a bunch of trees with no fruit. You're a cloud with no water. And so he's just, he's just bashing. And you know what? He don't stop. He keeps on. I'm like, when I read this, I like, okay, Brother Jude, you can slow it down. We got the point. But he keeps on because verse number 13, look at verse number 13, he keeps on with it. Raging winds of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars, whom is reserved for the blackness of darkness forever. And he just keeps on. He said, these people are really jacked up. He said, they're trees, they they're trees, they look good, they don't offer anything. They're clouds, they don't have no rain to offer. They're twice dead. They're pulled up by the roots. They're, they're, a, they're, they're the waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. He says, they're wandering stars. I thought about wandering stars. What did he mean by wandering stars? Well, Scripture interprets Scripture because Revelation 1, verse 16. Look at it. Revelation chapter 1 and verse, no, let's look at verse number 20. Revelation 1 verse 20. Revelation 1 verse number 20 say, states this. Wandering stars. Revelation chapter 1 verse number 20 says this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. In other words, the wandering stars are not in the hand of the Master. They're doing their own thing. They're wandering. They're not secure. Now, let's just go on and look at some more people that just gave up their faith or apostatized their faith. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 15. Here, Peter, the apostle, gives reference. He says, and we've, I think we already read this, didn't we? Yeah, we've already read this. Look at verse number, um, go back to that verse. Yeah, leave that verse there. This is what he says. I've read that verse to you where these people have forsaken the right way. They've gone their own way. They love the wages of unrighteousness. Now, a few scriptures below that, he ends the chapter by saying this of these people. Okay. Verse number 22, he says, these types of people who have gone their way, he says, these people are like a dog who returns to their own vomit. Who what? Returns 
in order for you to return to something, you were delivered from it. So these people returned. They were delivered from the puke, but they went back to it. They went back to it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 18. Let's continue to make the case that people can leave the faith. They can turn their back on the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Now, last week, I gave tons of scripture about a person losing their salvation. Honestly, if you missed it, if you really missed a good lesson, because it was a good lesson, I mean, enjoyed it. And I encourage you to go and listen to it, because there's so much I can't even deal with tonight. I'm just going to wrap it up tonight, and maybe we can finish this later, all right? So, First um, Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, he states this. This is this charge I commit to you, son Timothy. According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Verse number 19. Having faith and good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. He said, some people have rejected a good conscience. And now their faith is shipwrecked. He goes on, verse number 20, and gives examples of people who shipwrecked their faith. He says, I've, what I've done is I've delivered these people to the devil so that in the end their soul would be saved. As what Paul would do in 1 Corinthians as well. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse number. Nine. Look at this. Now this is odd. First Timothy chapter five, beginning with verse number nine. And now this is giving instructions to the church in how to honor true widows. Now there's instructions of what a widow is and what the responsibility of a church is. Okay, you know if a widow has family, the family should take care of the widow. Am I right about it? He gives an age stipulation here. Verse number 9, do not let a widow under 60 years of age uh, oh, be taken into the number and not unless she has been the wife of one man. So he's given stipulations of how to take care of a widow here. Verse number 10, well reported for good, uh, well reported for good works if she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. Now you think to yourself, I don't know anybody that's ever done any of that. <laughs> but I promise you, there are people who I have seen in my life that have showed great hospitality in a lot of these things. Verse number 11, But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow, when against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their First, faith. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house. And not only idle, but also gossips, and busybodies, saying things which they should not, they ought not. Ooh, that is some hard preaching right up in here, up in here, church. Y'all just take a breather right here. Y'all take a breather. Busybodies, gossips, saying things you should Oh, Lord, I want to say a few things, but I'm just going to keep hearing and believing and going forth, all right? 
Therefore, I desire, verse 14, the younger widows to marry. How many knows marriage is good? So go ahead and get married. Bear children. Manage the house. Y'all know that ain't popular. Give no opportunity. Give no what? For them to speak what? Reproachfully. So, live in such a way that you don't bring reproach. Is that right? Now, go on. And this is the thing I want you to see. Verse number 15. For some have already turned aside after Now, I thought these widows were good, good, good women. Well, obviously not. They're busy bodies, going from house to house, flapping their lips. And eventually, they were already going after the devil. How many knows your tongue will get you in trouble? Isn't it amazing? You can be 90 years old and up in a nursing home. Kathy works in a nursing home. Is this right, Kathy? Can I preach a little bit? You can be in a nursing home. That's right. Your hips can wear out. Hair piece can fall out. Eyes get dim, but that tongue keeps on clicking. Come on, am I right, Sister Kathy? Come on, somebody. I've been up in those nursing homes. They know how to talk. Don't even know where you're at, but they know how to talk. <laughs> they want to tell me what my great-granddad did in the 1940s. You know what I'm saying. Baby, sit down here. Let me tell you something. Let me sit, tell you something. You know you're in trouble when they sit. Sit down here, baby. Let me tell you something. <laughs> he says they've already turned aside. The devil. Now I know y'all waiting to hear something. Go to Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter six. Hebrews chapter number six. Now, are are we all okay? Everybody all right? Hebrews chapter six. We're almost done here. Hebrews chapter 6. Now look at this scripture. Hebrews 6 verse 6. I told you last week that we we're going to deal with this scripture tonight. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 6. If they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucified again themselves the Son of God and put Him to an open shame. You see that? Everybody say, I see that. Look at verse number 4. I need to go to verse number 4, then let's read the context. Verse number 4, For it is impossible, there you go, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucified again themselves the Son of God and put, to, put Him to an open shame. Now, you read this scripture and it almost sounds like if you do turn away and you try to come back, there ain't no hope for you. How many at first glance, that's what it sounds like? Come on, wait, wait, raise your hand. This is what it sounds like. If you turn away after you have been enlightened, okay, because look at verse number four, after you have been enlightened, after you have tasted the good word of God, it says, verse number 5, you have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. He says, 
You're enlightened. You're tasting it. You know it's true. Verse 6, if you fall away and to try to renew them again to repentance since they've crucified again themselves the Son of God. It almost sounds like it's impossible to come back if you fall away. And that is not what it's saying. This is what I want you to see about the Scripture. Sometimes read in the context of the Scripture, we forget the words, those, they, and you. Okay? Look at verse number 4. Look at it. Verse number 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Somebody say those. Okay, so it's talking about some group of people, right? For it is impossible. After you've come to the Lord, it almost sounds, after you've been saved, if you fall away, it's almost impossible to come back. That's what it sounds like. But I don't think it's teaching that at all. Because I do believe that would be almost contradictory to other scriptures. What I do think that this is teaching is if you look at the words those or they or we and you, I believe it's stating a case here. Because verse number 4, it uses the word those, okay? And then verse number 6, look at verse number 6. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify, you see that? Again, for themselves the Son of God. So it's talking about a group of people. He is using those, that word those, the article those or they. He's saying this group of people I'm talking about, they. They have tasted the Word of God. They have believed upon the Word of God. They have been enlightened. Those people have been enlightened. And then, verse number 9, you keep reading, and he says, in the same context, same context, verse number 9, he states this, But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Do you see that? Verse number 10, For God is not unjust to forget your work, and your labor of love, which you have shown towards His name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Verse 11, this is the key. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to full assurance of hope until the end. Verse number 12. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those through the faith and patience inherit the promise. So this is what he's saying. Those people have been enlightened, those people have tasted the Word of God, those people have been exposed to the powers of the age to come, but they fell away. And then he says in verse 9, but you, you, verse 9, I am confident that this is not going to happen to you. I pray this don't happen to you. I'm confident. He says, I'm speaking to you now. He says, because I don't want you, verse number 11, he says, I want you to show diligence. I want you to have full assurance of the hope to the very end. Verse 12, he says, I don't want you to become sluggish. So, get everybody look at me. He says, those people have tasted the Word of God. Those people have been enlightened, but they fell away. But you, I'm telling you, should not imitate them. You 
should be aware of that. You should not be sluggish. You should have patience, and you should have full assurance. He's saying, I am giving you an example of people who have turned away. He says, but you should do the opposite. You should have faith, you should have full assurance, and you should have patience, and you shouldn't be sluggish. Okay? That's, that's just foundational. But where do you answer the question about it's impossible if you've been enlightened, that you can't come back. Because the context here, he is talking to Jewish believers, don't lose me, Jewish Christians who left the church or they're holding on to the Jewish system of forgiveness. He says, if you do that, if you're believing in the old law and how somebody is justified through a sacrificial system, then you're crucifying Jesus again. You can't come to Jesus if you're going to hold on to the Jewish law, which states that you must go through a priest, and there must be an animal for the sacrifice of your sins. If you're holding on to that idea, holding on to that theology, then there is no forgiveness for your sin. You have turned away, and there is no forgiveness because you, you're not putting your faith in Christ. He says, but you... You should know something different. You shouldn't be sluggish. You should have faith, and you should be anchored in Christ. Now, how, how do I know? Because look at it. He says, he says, you should be anchored in Christ. He says, he gives an example. He gives an example here of people who, um, he gives an example of people here in Hebrews chapter 6. He says, in verse number 13, he goes on with it. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Okay? Now I want you to go down. He says, verse number 19, he ends the chapter by saying this, but this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. You know what he's saying? Those people are not putting their faith in Christ alone. Those people have turned away from the doctrine I've given them. They've turned away and they're believing still in the Jewish system of forgiveness. And if you do that, you can't be forgiven of your sin because you've got to not be sluggish about this thing. You've got to put your faith in Christ because He is the anchor for your soul. So it's not teaching that you can never come back. It's telling these Jewish Christians, if you put your faith in the Jewish system, there is no forgiveness for you. You've been enlightened, he says. You know the truth. I've preached to you. You're enlightened. You've tasted of the good things. And the Judaizers trying to pull you back into their system, their way of thinking. There's no forgiveness for you. Then you, know, you should know better. You should know better. I got 12 minutes. Are y'all with me? Oh, I know y'all, what y'all think. What about Judas? Y'all ready for this? Acts chapter 1. Let's just look at little Judas here. Acts chapter 1, verse 25. Acts chapter 1, verse 25. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 25, it states this, speaking of Jesus. You take part in this ministry, apostleship, from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go to his own place. He fell into transgression, is what the apostles stated. When they were voting on the twelfth apostle, because there's a vacancy, because Judas committed suicide. They got together, and this was their conclusion, that Judas fell because of transgression. This was their conclusion. He fell because of some sort of transgression. How do I know this is what the disciples thought? Well, look at Scripture. This is what the disciples are concluding. Judas, the one that was a part of us, Luke chapter 10, he was anointed, sent forth as an apostle to heal the sick and raise the dead. Okay. He was given the same power like all of us. He was an apostle, just like one of us. And we conclude that Judas fell into transgression. He walked away from it. Okay. So with that being said, that's what the disciples are thinking. Now if you go to Luke chapter 22, verse 23, Luke chapter, Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse number 23. Now, verse number 20. Well, look at verse 19. Luke 22, verse 19. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is the body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. Truly the Son of Man, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Verse 23, now look at 23. Then they begin to question among themselves which of them it was who would do such a thing. So the disciples had no idea that Judas would be the betrayer. Because you all know, if we were sitting at the table, we'd say, oh, let me tell you something, Jesus. I was at Judas's house. I know he's getting ready to betray you because you know I've been your friend for three years. I ain't ever going to betray you. Nobody at the table was aware that Judas was the betrayer because they all started asking themselves, is it I? Is it I? Nobody pointed fingers. You would think if Judas was showing some sort of signs that he's committing treason and, and that he's a betrayer, they would say something. Somewhere, somebody would say something. Somebody would take Jesus out for hamburgers and fries and say, listen, folk, I've been with you a couple years, but one of them is of the devil. I'm going to tell you who he is. He's been talking behind your back. But they didn't do that. Nope. Nobody said it was Judas. They thought. Is it I? Judas fell into transgression. Now, you go to John chapter 2. I'm almost done. John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I think I got the right verse here. John chapter 2, verse 24. This is interesting. Because this says something about Jesus here. John chapter 2, verse 24, 
but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Verse 25. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. All right? We know that Jesus knows all things. He knows what was in man. But yet the scripture says that Judas fell into transgression. And nobody, of course, among the disciples, it infers that they were aware that Judas was going to betray. All right? But then you come to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 66. John chapter 6. Well, let's go to verse 60. John chapter 6. In verse number 60. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Okay? Who can understand it? Verse 61. See it? Verse 61. And Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this. And he said to them, does this offend you? Verse number 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh that profits nothing. The words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Now, what? why did Jesus ask him if this offended them? Because verse 56 states this. Verse 56. Go up to verse 56. They were offended because Jesus said this. Verse 56. For he who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me, and I am him. I mean, they were like, dude, this is freaking me out. You want me to eat your flesh and drink your blood? And that's why the Scripture says, this is a hard saying. Does this offend you? Because these disciples are thinking, you want me to eat of your flesh and drink of your blood? And that's almost Catholicism. You know, they view communion as transubstantiation, that the body and the blood of Christ actually is transformed at the altar. He that eats my body, drinks my blood. They take it literally. But that's not what Jesus is saying here because Jesus says, verse 63, Jesus explains what he means. Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh, prophets, and the words I speak to you, they are what? He says, I'm speaking to you spiritually. I'm not telling you you got to eat my body. I'm not telling you you got to drink my blood. I'm talking to you in spiritual terms and you don't see what I'm saying here. Are y'all with me? Then he says verse 64, okay? Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Verse 64. He says there are some of you who don't believe. I thought they're all disciples. I thought they're all disciples. Verse 60 says they're disciples. Jesus says some of you don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. Verse number 65. And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. What, did they, what happened? They went back and they walked with him no more. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? Then Jesus says in verse 67, Jesus says to the twelve, do you also want to go away? Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Verse 69, 
And also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, let's stop here because we read this scripture, and I've read this scripture as if, preach on Peter. Peter, you're awesome. Because Peter's like, you are the Christ. You have the words of eternal life. We can't go nowhere. But hold on here. Because I believe that Peter here is a little bit too cocky and has self-confidence. Because Peter, verse number 69, 69, the word knowing here is the word for arrogance. Okay, The Greek word arrogance, or actually in the Greek it means puff up. So Peter here is like, hold on here, Peter's like, Everybody else left you, Jesus. We know who you are. We're not going to leave you. Those people are, quote, unquote, ignorant, stupid. We got the truth. We're going to stay with you. You see, you see how this is happening? We're going, we, you got the words of eternal life. We're going to stay with you. Those people don't know anything about it. And then Jesus says, verse 70, Jesus answered him, verse 70, this is Jesus' conclusion. He says, did I not choose you, the twelve? I even chose Judas. But one of you is the devil. Now, you know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus' answer is actually a rebuke for self-assurance that because other people turned away, we will never turn away, Jesus. Everybody else turned away, Jesus. But we will never turn away from you. He was speaking out of arrogance and pride. And Jesus says, Peter, come here. Come here, Peter. Come here. Did I not choose 12? Peter's like, no. You chose all of them. But one of them is a devil. Don't get too cocky, Peter, and think you can never turn away. Lots of them have turned away. And even one of you who's in the group, has turned away. Don't become so cocky. Think to yourself, I'll never fall away. Everybody else has fallen away. Jesus says, I, I need to tell you a little bit of truth here, Peter. I appreciate your self-confidence in this matter. But one of you really did fall away. Look at it in that context, it really explains everything, don't it? What are you saying? Well, Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Paul states it. He says, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks stands. Take heed lest he fall. What are you saying, Pastor? I am saying you can live in faith confidence in Christ, not self-confidence in yourself. It's confidence in Christ and what he has done for you. Not confidence in your knowledge like Peter, I have knowledge. I know who you are. I'll never walk away from you. It's got to be more than knowledge, Peter. Because Judas had a lot of knowledge about him. He 
Judas didn't continue to stay with him. Judas didn't continue habitually, hear me. Judas never habitually continued to stay with me. Therefore, the apostles concluded that he really did fall in the same trap. Because he was afforded the same opportunity that every one of those disciples had. But in the end, Judas fell into transgression. The great question of the ages is why did Judas do such a thing? Well, I believe that most historians believe, theologians believe, that Judas wanted the coming kingdom of God to be established on earth. And Jesus wasn't necessarily the Messiah that everybody thought he should be. Everybody wanted to be delivered from Rome. Everybody wanted to live in peace and prosperity like they had under King David. And Jesus wasn't doing what they expected him to do. And Judas, by the sword, wanted Jesus to hurry it up and overthrow those Romans. Hurry up, Jesus. Establish your kingdom because we're your 12. We will reign with you in this new kingdom. And Jesus is saying, listen, I've not come to establish a physical kingdom. You're missing it, Judas. I've come to establish a kingdom in your heart first. And Judas wanted a physical kingdom. He wanted to rule and reign with Christ now. Jesus never fulfilled his expectations. So that's why he could take 30 pieces of silver and sell them. Because you can easily get rid of somebody that you don't believe in anymore. Why believe in him when he's not overthrowing the Romans? You're still living in oppression. He's out by the hillside giving fish sandwiches out. He's out by the hillside ministering to women and children. Jesus is not overthrowing the Roman oppression. That's why Judas got upset. Why Judas took his hand and put it in the money bag. Christians don't blow out, they leak out. Little by little. Little by little. Miss a few church services, miss a few Bible studies, miss a few Bible readings. Just go ahead and do it. Just miss a few. And that few becomes miles and miles and miles and miles. And then you come to a place in your life where you think, what has happened to my life? You've got to continue to believe in him. Habitually put your faith in Christ. Habitually serve him. Amen. Somebody say praise the Lord. You say, Pastor, you scared me tonight. I'm glad. I want to scare you right out of hell and right into heaven tonight. Come on, somebody. Amen. If you leave tonight feeling convicted, I am so glad. If you leave tonight and can't sleep tonight, I am so glad. Because it's an opportunity for us to draw near to Christ. Somebody shout hallelujah. Y'all with me tonight? I'm going to close with this. Hebrews 10, 38. This is what I'm going to close with. Hebrews 10, 38. Hebrews 10.38 states this. He says, Hebrews 10, verse 38, states, Now the just shall live. Now isn't that interesting? The just doesn't begin in faith. The just lives by faith. But if anyone draws back, 
my soul has no pleasure. Verse 39, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Aren't you glad that the apostle said, you're not like those who draw back, but you are like those who continue to believe that God will continue to save your soul. Amen. Don't draw back. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep putting your faith in Christ. And if you keep believing and keep trusting and keep running after Christ, you're eternally secure in His arms. Can I hear an amen? Somebody say praise the Lord.